Good morning, Gateway family, as we gather again in our homes to watch online. I'm excited to be able to tell you that we are hoping on June 8th to have an update for each of you about our plan for reopening. So that means that June 7th, we will still be gathering in our homes and watching online. But the following day on June 8th, we hope to send an update out that looks like we may be shooting for mid-June to be able to reopen. Now, that is still tentative. We're still monitoring the situation of the coronavirus in Montgomery. But that is our hope, and that is the goal we're going to shoot for and try to prepare for. But we're going to continue to monitor the situation in the meantime. But as we continue to gather online and we're not able to all gather in person here, I want to encourage you to continue to look for opportunities to connect with members of the Gateway community online. Check the blog post and also the email that was sent out with all the list of small groups and Sunday school classes and Bible studies that not only are meeting on Zoom, but they're also starting to meet in person. So some of those groups are already starting to have social distance meetings in person, and that would be a great way for us to connect with community and the people we haven't been able to see and talk to and encourage and be encouraged by. So encourage you to do that. That's the only updates we have for you this morning as we prepare our hearts to worship. I want to share a scripture with you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It reads this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Let's rejoice in the name of Jesus this morning.
Ransomed me, 
Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for during this season to be able to declare those amazing truths in that song, Lord, just about how great you are. Just be able to come together and declare your majesty and your splendor and the glory of who you are. And Lord, we thank you for those words. We thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for the attributes we just declared that we can trust in during this season still, Lord, of of trial and suffering and uncertainty and that we can look to you, God, as the one true source of all things. And again, Lord, we thank you each week that we can come together and be able to lift up and intercede and stand in the gap for individuals, for situations, for countries, for people groups, uh, to be able to lift them up before you, Lord, in confidence to a God who is so faithful and so good. And so, Lord, again, each week we come and we declare and ask for your mercy, God, for, for healing, for protection, for our Gateway family, during the season, Lord, um, when many, even with the COVID-19 situation, has hit some very close and dear to us here in the Gateway family, God, we pray for your mercies and compassion and mercy. And uh, even right now, Lord, some grieving during a season of even losing loved ones and some who are ill. We pray, God, that you continue to move um, among our body, Lord, and protect those and strengthen them, give them peace and comfort. And Lord, even for, for continued prayer, Lord, for our first responders, for those nurses and EMTs and those that are within our body, God, continue to protect them, watch over them. God, we pray for strength and peace as they're on the front lines, being salt and light and your ambassadors, providing care, um, providing hope for those who don't see hope at this time. And we uh, just continue, Lord, to lift them up to you as well. Lord, we also pray for our Gateway youth who are about to uh, go, th- to, I think, today for a, be- a beach retreat to be able to spend some time together um, in your word and worship and fellowship and community. God, we pray you protect them, give them a safe trip down and back um, as they're going to go and just spend a good time together over a few days uh, to worship you and to grow in their walk with you, Lord, and preparing for the summer and the next steps that you have for each of these students. Uh, we just pray, God, you would meet with them, you would draw them to yourself, protect them, Lord, as they're down there, as they're fellowshipping and um, doing their part to social distance and all that they even have to do at the beach and those that they may encounter, God, we just pray your overall protection and, God, your kingdom come and your will be done for them on that trip. Lord, we continue to pray for our government leaders at the federal level, national, state, local. God, they need your wisdom during the season for continued decisions that need to be made as uh, the, the COVID pandemic continues and different transitions that it's going through. God, we just pray you would continue to speak to them, give them guidance and wisdom um, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of our nation, and for all that's involved, Lord, there's so much going on that they need your insight and wisdom as these decisions are made. And Lord, we continue to thank you for the ministry and the relationship that we have with Pastor Mark in Haiti. We know, God, things are continuing to move down there. Your gospel's going forward. He's having gospel encounters. God, we thank you for the resources you provided for he and his family and for his community and the church. We thank you that the church uh, in the mountains continuing to be built. It's almost finished. Uh, we thank you, God, for all that you've provided for them. And God, we just pray a continued protection over he and his family, over his uh, parishioners, those that are part of his church as they're going into the hills, having small groups, ministering to people, bringing the gospel. Lord, we thank you for them and that we can be a part in partnering with them and lifting them up in prayer. And God, thank you for the privilege each week that we can pray for these unreached people groups and uh, in different parts of the world. And Lord, we thank you for the Jahanka peoples of Gambia, uh, this Muslim community. 
uh, there in Africa. We just pray, God, um, that we've recently found out that they do have some gospel recordings in their language. And just recently, God, we praise you that some have come to saving faith in this small Muslim community. God, we just pray through these resources, through those that have come to faith, God, that you would do an amazing work through the Jahanka people, that your gospel would go forward, that these uh, individuals who have come to faith would have boldness and confidence to be able to share their faith in the situation that they're in, um, even though there may be persecution. Uh, God, that you bring conviction to those individuals, and uh, God, that you would just move among the Jahanka peoples to see a revival break forth and a harvest come forward. And Lord, again, we thank you so much for our pastor. We thank you for his faithfulness, his shepherding heart, his desire to feed us, to love us, to care for us. We pray that you give him wisdom today and strength um, and just guide and direct his steps as he brings your word to us this morning. Um, Thank you again, Lord, for resources and all that you provide for us. We are so grateful. You are so good. We're so blessed that even during this season, God, you provide and you give us all that we need. And we thank you for those that have given online and those that have sent in um, uh, resources. We just thank you and praise you and that it would all be used for your glory and for your kingdom work here at Gateway. And again, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can even have the technology and for Ira and for Ashley and the worship team and all those that have volunteered their time and to come and to allow us the opportunity to worship together, um, to be able to have these recordings, Lord, and eventually live streaming. We just are so grateful for all that you provided for us. And we just say again, your kingdom come and your will be done this morning as we seek you, as we honor you, as we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Gateway family. I want you to find James chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word. James chapter 2 this morning. Now, while you're finding out, I want to ask you, did you know that in our country, in the United States, 65% of Americans say they're followers of Jesus? 65% of Americans say they have faith in Christ. Now, if you come to our state, the state of Alabama, it's even higher. In our state, 86% of people say they're followers of Christ. 86% of people say that they are following Jesus. Because that's striking that in our day-to-day interactions with people here in Montgomery, 8 out of 10 people we meet would say that they're followers of Christ, would say that they are Christians. But do they, friends? Do they really follow Christ? Friends, when I look at the national news, our country certainly does not look like a place where 65% of the people around us are living for Jesus each day, does it? Friends, when I look at our state news and I look at our local news here in Montgomery, it certainly does not look like 86% of the people in Montgomery are committed to living their lives for Jesus Christ. Now that raises an important question for us, friends, and the question is, what is real faith in God? What is real faith in God? Now this is an important question for us, not for us to be able to look down condescendingly on others. That's not the point of the question. But this question is important for two reasons, friends. First of all, it affects how we pray for and share the hope of Christ with others. It affects how we pray for and share the hope of Christ with others. Friends, I think we're easily lulled into not doing evangelism, into not sharing the hope of Christ with others, because so many people we meet are like, oh yeah, I go to church, or oh yeah, I'm a Christian, oh yeah, I believe in God. And we miss the fact there's people around us who probably do not have saving faith. But the second reason this question is important, friends, is we need it for our own self-assessment. We need to ask ourselves, do I really have saving faith in Christ? And what is the basis of my confidence? We come today to the question of what is real faith? Now, friends, this is a challenging topic. It's the next topic that James comes to in his letter that we're working through. 
Friends, we've just finished the first half of James chapter 2, where we spent several weeks looking at his long teaching about partiality, about the dangers of favoritism or cliques in the church, as showing preference for some believers over others because of external things. James now introduces his next big idea. He transitions here today to the idea of what is real faith. And James will spend 12 verses on this important topic. What is real faith? Now this morning in James chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17, where he introduces this question, this idea for us. And to do so, James is going to give us three very pointed questions this morning. He's going to give us two examples to help us evaluate our own life and to even think about the context and those around us of what is real faith. Do I have real faith? Do others around me have real faith? So as we read James chapter 2 this morning, I want you to be simply looking, while we see his questions and his examples, be looking for what is real faith. What is real faith? James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. If you're able, friends, could you stand please in honor of the reading of the Word of God? We have a treasure of God's revelation to us this morning. We get to read it together, and I'm so thankful for that. I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, what do you say to them? Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the parts that encourage us, and we're thankful for the parts that convict us. We're thankful for the parts that give us hope, and we're thankful for the parts that push us. Lord, as we come to this challenging topic this morning of what is real faith and how do we know if we have real faith, God, I pray you'd use this to work in the lives of your people. That those who are watching today and participating from home today who have real saving faith, that God, you would just confirm that for them. They would see your grace at work in their lives and it would just be an anchor for them regardless of whatever difficulties they're walking through. Lord, if there are those who are watching today who may think they have faith but really don't, God, in your kindness to them, would you open their eyes today to see their true state before you, that they wouldn't go through life basing their confidence on things beyond what it should be in, and that is your grace. So would you use this today to build up your people and to draw those who need to come to you, to you this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends. You may be seated. So how do we know if we have real faith? Now, you may be thinking, if you've been with us for some weeks now at Gateways, we're doing this online, you may be thinking, Grady, this sounds pretty familiar, and it should. If you think back six weeks ago, we were looking at James chapter 1, verse 27. If you remember that week, we saw a main idea of that text was that real faith is a gift from God that transforms us. So again, from James chapter 1, verse 27, those six weeks ago, we saw that real faith is a gift that God gives to us and that it transforms. Us. It transforms how we care for other people. It transforms how we view sin in our lives. It transforms how we view God. Now, if that is one side of a coin, if that's one truth that goes with it, today we're flipping the coin other over, and James is giving us the other side of that coin. Today's text is the same truth, but presented in the form of a warning. So if real faith is a gift from God that transforms us, let's flip that coin today. And today we're going to see in this text that faith that does not transform us is useless. The faith that does not transform us is useless. In other words, if our faith in Christ does not change us, does not grow us, does not change how we view God and how we view one another, if it doesn't change our thoughts, our words, our actions, if it does not have a transforming effect over us, then we deceive ourselves if we think we have real faith. 
The faith that we think we have is useless if it's not transforming us. Faith does not transform us is useless. Now, to help us understand this truth, James is going to give us two different examples to help get our mind around what he's trying to say here. Let's look at the first example that James gives us. Go back to verse number 14 this morning. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, now here's the first example, someone is speaking in this example, and this person says, he has faith, but he does not have works. Now, in this expression this person is saying that James is describing for us, faith is the very first word of this expression. It's given the place of emphasis, the place of prominence here. James is helping us see that this is a person who claims to have faith, a person who claims to believe in Jesus, a person who would self-identify as a Christian, a person, if you ask them on the street, do you believe in God? Oh, sure, I believe in God. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. It'd be someone who claims to have faith. But this person who claims to have faith, James says in verse 14, also says they do not have works. Now, works here is a plural word in the Greek. Works means the behaviors associated with one's beliefs. It's the behaviors associated with one's beliefs, the actions, the behavior, the thoughts, the words, the lifestyle of a person that comes from what they believe. So do you see what this person is saying, friends? This person in this first example James is giving says, sure, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live like I want to live. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Nothing has to change now. Now, there are some people today who would say it that boldly, but most people wouldn't say it that boldly, but many people, they still believe that they may may not articulate it quite that way. Have you ever been trying to share Jesus with someone and sharing the hope of Christ with someone, and they respond to you with, oh, I'm, I'm okay, I'm a Christian. I remember when I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a kid, and that's all that matters. They're saying it a different way, but they're saying the same thing. Hey, it doesn't matter what my life is like now, but I remember when I prayed that prayer in vacation Bible school or my parents or in Sunday school, and I'm okay. They're saying the same thing that this person in James is saying. You hear other people describing others that way of, I'm not sure what happened to him. I'm not sure why he's not in church. I'm not sure why she doesn't walk with Jesus anymore, but I remember when they prayed the prayer, and I'm so glad they're okay. It's the same thing. They may not have works, but the person's still basing their confidence the same way this person in James chapter 2, verse 14 is. Or perhaps you hear it most clearly in the common expression, once saved, always saved. Where do you hear that expression used the most? Someone who is not walking with God, where there's no evidence of transformation in their life, but they're basing it on, hey, I think I was saved at one time, so I'm good for here on out. Friends, all those common ways of people talking today are is saying the same thing of James chapter 2, verse 14. These are people today wrestling with the same issue of what is real faith and ultimately coming in a more tactful way to the same conclusion of this person in James chapter 2, verse 14. I have faith, but I do not have works. Now, with that example, James now raises two very important questions bookended on either side of this example. Look at the questions he asks in verse 14. The very beginning, what good is it? And then at the very end of verse 14, can that faith save him? Now, friends, these two questions are asking the same thing. Let's look at them. First question, what good is it? The word good means what benefit? What use is it if a person says they have faith, but they have no works? They have no transformation, no change in their life. What type of benefit, what type of good is James talking about here? Remember what he just talked about last week in verse number 13. He says in the verse before, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So what is on James' mind as he's writing this section about faith and works? He's still thinking about judgment, about eternity, about the day that we stand before a holy God face to face and see him all of his glory and have to give an account of our lives and how we have or have not followed him. 
When James says, what good is it? He's saying, what good, what benefit, what help will there be at the time of judgment for a person who says, oh yeah, yeah I have faith, I'm a Christian, but it's not radically changed them. So he doesn't, we don't miss it. This is what he's trying to say. He repeats the question at the end of verse 14, but even more clearly, look at the last question of verse 14. He says, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? The word save means to rescue at the time of judgment. Can a faith that does not transform us rescue us from judgment without mercy? Which means strict judgment. Can a faith that does not radically change our whole lives rescue us from condemnation that we deserve from a holy God for offending him with our sin? Now in English it may look like James is asking a question that's up for debate here. But it's not. In the Greek where this was originally written, both of these questions require a negative answer. For the sake of argument, James is writing a question, but he's writing a question that's very clear that the answer to these questions is no. What good is it, my brothers? In the Greek, the answer is implied. It is no good to have faith without works. In the second question of verse 14, can that faith save him? There's actually a word in the Greek that does not get translated into English because it wouldn't flow in our language, but it's a word at the beginning of this question that makes the question have a negative answer. It requires a negative answer. So you could literally translate the end of verse 14 with, that type of faith cannot save him, can it? And that's exactly what James is trying to help us see. That a faith that does not have works, a faith that does not transform us, is totally useless. Now friends, this is nothing new in Scripture. This is something that Jesus himself taught back in Matthew chapter 7. He uses a different imagery than James, but Jesus is saying the exact same thing. In in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. When Jesus is talking about fruits, he's talking about the same thing that James is talking about with works. The fruits are the transformation, the outward evidence of a life that has true faith, the outward evidence of a life that is committed to following Christ. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to give this image. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree That's an image here for a follower of Christ. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. Everyone who follows Christ bears good fruit, produces good works. There's transformation. There's evidence of it. Jesus says, but the diseased tree, that's a tree, the person who's still in sin, who's not trusting in Christ alone, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The evidence of one not following Christ is a life still enslaved to sin. Jesus goes on and says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, and that's faith that transforms here, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the image of judgment, the strict judgment, the judgment without mercy that we saw in verse 13 last week. Jesus then concludes, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he goes on to say this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't miss that, friends. There's many people who think they have faith. Remember, in our state, 86% of people say they have faith. But does the works of their life show that they really do? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The saving faith that will rescue us at the time of judgment, according to Jesus and according to James here, is a faith that transforms us, that makes us long to follow the will of God, and that grows us in following His will. So Jesus says a faith without works cannot save us. James says a faith without works cannot save us. 
But friends, this truth is so important that James gives a second example here of this as well to make sure we understand how significant it is that we need a faith that changes us. Look at verses 15 and 16 back in James chapter 2 of our text for today. In James 2, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So James tells us a story of a member of the church he's writing to who has a need. And the need of this Christian is great. It says that this person is poorly clothed. Now, some of your translations may say that they are without clothes. Now, the Greek word can mean either completely without clothes or, or poorly clothed. Most likely what the ESV does here is correct, that it means someone poorly clothed. It's a person not completely without covering, but a person in rags, a person with inadequate protections to keep themselves warmer, to keep themselves safe from the elements. It's a person in need of basic clothing. But this Christian's need is even greater than just clothing. It also says here in verse 14 that they are lacking in daily food. And the Greek here, the word for lacking, is the continuous tense. They're lacking and lacking and lacking and lacking. This is a daily state of a person here that James is describing, that they not only are in rags, but they're hungry day after day. They have inadequate food. They're constantly hungry. And yet this person in need is a true follower of Christ. James says it's a brother or a sister. It's someone in the church family who claims the name of Christ. But, and let me say as well, this is a person who James describes in James chapter 2 verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? This is a person who is loved by God, who is rich in faith, one who the church has been called to love as well. But friends, the church is not loving well this person who is a follower of Christ. The church people are being partial to the rich and they're doing what James forbade. Go back up to verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. James warns, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, I say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And helping us think about real faith, James is saying that the, the people who claim to have faith in the church are shunning this poor Christian. They're being partial to the rich. And how did they shun the poor Christian? How did they show this favoritism and partiality? Look at verse 16. And one of you, remember he's writing to the church, so this is someone who self-identifies as a Christian, as a church member. And one of you says to this poor person, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. Go in peace was the common blessing that was given to people when you said goodbye. As equivalent of the, the person who says they have faith walking to this poor believer and saying to them, God bless you, have a good day, goodbye, with a complete unwillingness to engage this person at their point of need. But friends, that's bad, but it only gets worse in what this person who self-identifies as a Christian does. This person who lacks transforming faith does. This person spiritualizes his lack of concern. This person spiritualizes their unwillingness to help the person in need. Notice back in verse number 16 here. One of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled. Well, in the Greek here, this is the passive tense. That's a tense that means you can't do it yourself. This person who has resources, but who's lacking in transforming faith, says to the poor person with a very real faith, but with very real needs, says to them, you go be warmed. Someone's got to do it for you. You go be filled with food. I know someone's got to do it for you. What this person is saying, when you couple it with the blessing at the beginning, go in peace, which can also mean God be with you. This, per- this person is saying to the person in need, God will provide you with your food. God will provide you with, with your clothes. Have a good day. 
This person is using pious religious language to excuse their inaction. Instead of them saying, let me help you find food, instead of saying, let me help you find clothes, this person dismisses the poor person and says, God will take care of you, go in peace. Now friends, that's atrocious, but it still happens today. Our human nature hasn't changed, our sin nature is still the same. And things like that are still said, again, sometimes bluntly like we see in this example, but often a lot more tactfully. Have you ever heard someone, when they've lost their job or have some type of financial need, instead of hearing, hey, let me help you with your financial need, a person hears instead from someone who's a church member, hang in there, God's going to provide. They're saying the exact same thing. I'm not going to help you, but I'm sure God will. Have you ever seen a situation where perhaps there's like a single mom with several kids, and she gets sick, and she's overwhelmed with life? Instead of saying, here's some meals to help you, hey, I'm going to take your kids so that you can go rest and get well. She hears from people in the church, oh, go take it easy. Don't try to do too much. We're praying for you. It's just a more tactful way of the same thing that is being said here. Friends, our hearts can be so selfish. We can see needs and we can spiritualize our, our, our lack of action. And we can even spiritualize how we describe it to the person in need and just write them off unwilling to help. Doing what this person did in verse 16. Go in peace, be warm and fill without giving them the things needed for the body. James has given these two drastic examples to catch our attention, to help us see the problem of our own heart. And with these examples, now he returns to his question at the end of verse 16. What good is that? What benefit, what use is a faith that says, I believe in Jesus, but is unwilling to engage people at their point of need? No surprise, verse 16's question here, what good is it? It's just like the questions we saw before. In the Greek language, it requires a no answer to be given with it. It is no good, isn't it? And yes, it is no good to have a faith that does not transform. These type of answers and unwillingness to help does no good for the person in need. And friends, it does no good for the person speaking as such because it shows a heart that is far removed from understanding the mercy and the grace of God. A faith that does not transform us, friends, is useless. That's heavy. That's hard. Friends, that hurts. But James is not done yet. He's trying to get our attention on something so important that's so easily missed. So he's given us two examples. A person who says, I have faith, but I don't have to have works. He's given us the example of the person turning a blind eye to a need and just saying, go in peace, be warm and filled, but I'm not going to help you. He's given us three soul-piercing questions. What good is it? It's none. Can that faith save? No. What good is it? It's none. Now, he's not done. He's going to take these three questions and two examples and bring it all to a summary in verse number 17. And look at his final summary of this, what he's trying to say to us here. It says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A faith that does not produce change in our life, like concern for other people. A faith that does not grow us in godliness is not real. Instead, James says it is dead. The Greek word here is the word nekros. It is a very strong word for dead, for rotting, for completely pointless. It cannot save anything. It can accomplish no saving value. It can do nothing for us. That type of faith that does not change is of no use. One person I read this week said it this way, a faith which does not result in action is a dead sham. Think about that. A faith that does not produce action, does not produce change in us, is a dead sham. Friends, faith that does not transform us is useless. 
Now, friends, there's an important clarification we need to make here about what we're talking about. This text has been a point of frustration for some people over the years because they read it and they see what James is saying. You need to have faith that produces works. You need to have faith in works of both. And they go, but wait, when I read Paul's writings in the New Testament, Paul makes it very clear that we are saved apart from any works. How can James say that we have to have faith plus works? And Paul says we're to have faith without works. So, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what is it? Do we have to have works or not? Is James and Paul contradicting one another? And the answer is no, they're not. And let me tell you why. They're speaking about two different things. When Paul is addressing works, he's talking about works before you come to faith in Christ. He's talking about what you might call pre-conversion works. Works you do to try to get to God. And Paul in his writings rightfully shows us that our works can never get us to God. We cannot do enough good to ever earn God's favor. But friends, when James addresses works, he's talking about works after you come to faith in Jesus. He's talking about what you might call post-conversion works. The things you do not to get to God, but things you do because you already belong to Him and because God is transforming you. James is talking about what we saw in Matthew 7 from Jesus. He's talking about the fruits, the evidence of saving faith. So Paul and James are addressing different things. Paul is making sure people do not think they can be good enough to get to God, whereas James is making sure people do not think they're okay with God if there's no transformation, no change in their life. Both Paul and James are addressing false teachings that can infiltrate the church then and now. Paul is correcting a works-based salvation, that people think that I'm getting to God because I'm basically a good moral person. And friends, that's still a very common idea today, that you will meet people if you talk to them about their hope for heaven. If they say, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. And you ask them a question of, well, if you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven, what will you say I've had so many people tell me, oh, I'm going to tell them I'm basically a good person, or I believe in you, and it's all works-based. And so Paul corrects that. But James is correcting what we might call easy believism, which is a huge danger, friends, in the American church. The idea that I just pray a prayer, I just ask Jesus into my heart, now I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, I can live like I want the rest of my life. That heresy is just as dangerous today as well. And there's many who fall into that. There's many people who have been told their life, you prayed the prayer, you're okay with God. Hey, you got baptized, you joined the church, try to be a basically good person and you'll be okay with God. And so Paul corrects for us the wrong thinking that I can be good enough to get to God. And James corrects the wrong thinking that it doesn't really matter what I do because I'm going to heaven when I do. Both are correcting errors, but they're correcting different errors. And so James, in his situation here, he's writing to these early believers to help them correct their wrong thinking of what we might call today easy believism. He loves them so much, he's willing to point out to them the fact that they think they're okay with God when there's no evidence that they have a faith that is actually changing them. Friends, that was needed then. It's also needed today. So I was studying this week. One of my favorite people to read recently on James has been a guy named Daniel Doriani. He's a pastor and also a biblical scholar. And in one of the books I was reading of his, he said this, and this is very, I think, pointed and very direct about where we see so much of the church today in America. He says, Many people accept the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. They understand how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection remedy their estrangement from God. They go to church from time to time. They like to read and talk about spiritual things. They know the central teachings of the Christian faith. They're pleasant folks. They seem to live decent lives, though they may indulge a vice or two. 
When conversation turns to Jesus or what happens after death, they sound like believers. They adhere to orthodox evangelical theology. But watch this. Yet, there is nothing distinctly Christian about their behavior. See what he's saying? There's people today who understand we're sinners, who understand, oh yeah, Jesus died for our sins and rose again. They can talk spiritual things. They go to church from time to time. They're pretty decent, moral people. When the conversation turns to spiritual things, they can sound like they're an evangelical Christian, yet there's nothing distinctly Christian about their behavior. Doriani continues. He said, they may be decent neighbors and they perform a little community service, but watch this, but there is no real self-sacrifice, no costly obedience, no good deed that goes against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. People who would say they have faith, who can talk the talk and do the church stuff, but there's no real self-sacrifice, no costly obedience, no good deed that goes against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. Friends, James has told us before that real faith is a gift from God that transforms us. And now he flips the coin and reminds us of the other reality that goes with that truth. The faith is d- that does not transform us is useless. Faith that does not transform us is useless. So friends, I want to ask you this morning, as you're at home and you're studying God's Word and singing with us and thinking about the Lord this morning, I want to ask you, do you have a real faith that transforms? Are you confident that you have faith in God, that you know God and there's fruit, there's evidence in your life that you have a faith that is radically changing you because you belong to God now, because the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Because I want to ask you this morning, how has following Jesus changed your thoughts, changed your words, changed your behavior? How has your faith changed how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your employees at work? How has following Jesus changed how you relate to other students at school, relate to your neighbors, relate to your co-workers? And a lot of that quote I just read you a minute ago, friends, how has following Jesus led you to self-sacrifice? Friends, how has following Jesus given you the desire and the strength for costly obedience? How has faith in Christ led you to do things that go against your nature, your personality, your grain. And friends, the way Doriana said it is so well, how does, has following Jesus challenged your well-designed life? How is following Jesus, how is true faith in Him transforming how we view our well-designed life? Friends, if our faith is not transforming us, James is calling us to take a close look at where we stand before God. And to not be deceived in thinking we're okay with God if there's no evidence of God working and still working in our lives because we belong to Him. James is calling some of you to realize that you can't rely on your standing before God because you prayed a prayer of joy in a church or got baptized. If there's no fruit, no transformation. Friends, if that's you, run to God today. Run to God today, seeking Him in true faith and true belief. Embracing Him both as your Savior from sin, but also your Lord. So we've seen in recent weeks, running to Him, not only to be rescued from the penalty of sin, but to be rescued from the power of sin in your life because you want to live for the one who loves you and made you and has redeemed you. Friends, if that's you, run to God in true faith before it's too late. But friends, if your faith is real and it's transforming you, how does it still need to transform you? Because friends, none of us have arrived yet. 
We're still in the process of sanctification, of growing in godliness. How is your faith transforming you today? And how does it need to transform you this week? Is there some area, friends, that Jesus is challenging on, that the Holy Spirit is convicting of, that the Word of God is showing your life that you need to grow in and be transformed in? And what you think about and how you speak and your behavior, or again, in the words of that quote, do we need some type of transformation in how we view our well-designed life? And friends, the good news is, if we belong to Christ, He loves us so much that He's not going to leave us where we are. He yearns jealously over us, and He is going to draw us in godliness and grow us in godliness and give us a faith that transforms us so more and more through this life, we look more and more like Christ for our own joy and for His glory. Friends, do you have real faith in Christ that's transforming you? And if so, friends, how is that faith going to transform you this week? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. God, that you've shown us who you are and who we are and how we get to know you and how we get to walk with you. And Lord, you've shown us your amazing love for us. You've shown us your holiness and your greatness and your majesty and your splendor. God, you've revealed yourself to us and we are so thankful for that. And we're so thankful as well that your word makes it very clear to us what true faith is like. I just want to pray specifically this morning. If there's someone watching this service and their faith is not real, their faith is something based in prayers they prayed or external things they've done and is not transforming faith, is not a faith to where they're experiencing the joy of your discipline when they sin. They're not experiencing the joy of being led by you and being corrected by you because you love us. I pray that today, God, they quit relying on those external things and today would be the day that they would bow their knee before you and cry out to you and see you for who you are and become a child of God. Lord, for the many who are watching in our Gateway family and are participating from home today to worship you because they love you, Father, would you encourage them today in your grace? Would they see fresh evidence of your grace and your love for them transforming them? And I pray this week ahead that they would find new conviction, new desires, new just affections to walk with you and love you, new perspectives on how to fight the sin in their lives by your grace because they know they belong to you. So Lord, for all of us this morning, Lord, would you in your kindness and grace to us, would you give us a faith that will radically transform us so that we might walk with you and live for you all of our days. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, would you join us in singing about the character, the holiness, the justice, and the mercy of our God?
Father, what we've just sung is our desire. Lord, we want to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we know in our own strugglings, our own failings, how we cannot do that on our own apart from your grace. So Lord, this week, would you remind us of who you are, how holy you are, how majestic you are, how sovereign you are, how reigning you are. And I pray as you remind us these truths of your character, your nature, that you will turn our eyes to look upon you, to see you in your beauty, to live for eternity, to remember that you are the righteous judge. And I pray that would transform us. Lord, we cry out for mercy and grace this week. You might help us have a type of faith that will transform how we live, Lord, so that you get all the glory and we find all the joy of walking with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.